Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, we're asking ourselves a few questions about experience design. Specifically, what responsibilities do designers have to their clients, to their users, and ultimately to themselves? To help us answer these questions is the ever-passionate Mike Montero, co-founder and design director over at Mule Design, a leading interactive design studio in San Francisco. You might know Mike as the author of the books Design is a Job and You're My Favorite Client, both published by A Book Apart, and he can be found giving talks around the globe. He also dabbles in teaching his craft. Mule now offers workshops and things like how to get better at presenting design work or collaborating on user research, all things that Mike sees as gaps in design education today. In his chat with Intercom Director of Brand Design, Stuart Scott Curran, Mike shares why he thinks the veil of ignorance, rather than empathy, is perhaps the greatest tool in a designer's toolbox. The veil of ignorance is a philosophical construct where when you're designing a system, it's, you can't take for granted which side of the system that you'd actually be on. The issues he sees with design education today and the gaps employers must be ready to fill. You know, you've got designers who are most focused on style, which is the least important part of designing anything. And the skills he looks for in potential design hires. How do you talk about your work? What do you want to get out of your career? How excited you get about things that you don't know? How willing are you to admit that you don't know something? To check out more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're over there, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. It really helps new folks find the show, and we appreciate any feedback. And now, let's hop in the studio with Stuart Scott Curran and Mike Montero. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Scott Curran of Intercom. My pleasure. So you've been you've been all over the place, especially recently. You've been traveling a lot with your latest talk, which is called How to Fight Fascism, a designer's guide. You just threw that last part in. I did, there. did a you designer's like guide. You can have that for a, free. A designer's guide. Like how to fight fascism for dummies. A designer's <laughs> guide. Um, we haven't spoken for a few weeks, but there was something I saw. Were you mad at me? No, 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 no. Okay, it sounded like you were mad the, at me. No, not at all. Um, it's been a nice break. Um, I'll bet it has. It was a nice break for me, too. <laughs> so there was um, there was a little story that I saw you post on Twitter uh, from when you were in Toronto. Uh-huh. When you went to Portuguese Bakery. Oh, was, the bakery story. Yeah. Oh, that's a good story. So I thought it was a pretty, a pretty good story to, to kick off with. You want me to tell that story? Yeah, would you? Okay. So I was in Toronto, and uh, I looked at the map, and I saw that there was this neighborhood called Little Portugal. And I thought, well, let's go check that out, because, you know, I'm Portuguese. So I was walking around Little Portugal, and I started seeing all, you know, little tiles on the houses and stuff, little signs that if you're Portuguese, like, you know, like, hey, want, like you can get safe haven here. Like other white people, they don't know, but we know. It's like we, we can pick up all these signs. And, you know, there's like winks and, and handshakes that we give each other. Like, So then I, I saw this bakery, and it looked like a Portuguese bakery because it had, you know, it had like all the tiles outside and, and uh, also said Portuguese bakery. That was kind of a giveaway. So I walked in, and I, st- and I saw like uh, all of the, you know, Portuguese pastries and stuff that I was used to growing up. And I walked up and started talking to them and asked them, are you, are you Portuguese? And they looked at me like, 
what's this guy want? And I, I said, well, it's, it, I'm Portuguese too. It's okay. Uh, so we started talking, and it turned out that they, they're from the same town as my people are. And the guy who owned the bakery came out from the back and his wife, because every Portuguese business is a family business. And um, they knew my grandmother. Turned out they all knew my grandmother. And the owner used to work at the same factory that my dad worked at before each family immigrated out of, uh, of Portugal. Yeah. So I, um, I gave him my dad's number, gave my dad his number, mm-hmm. called my dad up, told him that my dad did remember him. Yeah, really? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't remember when my birthday is, but he remembered this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's never going to hear this. <laughs> so he remembered this guy. And then they gave me like a, a little a box of pastries and sent me on my way. So I was in Toronto in a town that I've never been to before and met met people who knew my grandmother. Amazing. Randomly. Yeah, amazing. That's pretty great. I felt good for the rest of the day. Yeah. So it kind of like talks a little bit into some of the stuff that I wanted to ask you about today, which is like, you know, we're we're talking to a lot of designers today. So like how can we as designers working on digital products create more experiences like yours in that bakery, you know, experiences that promote and enable the kind of human connection and decency that, that you got there. You said it's the first time you'd kind of experienced that in a while. So it's like what can what can we be doing as designers to facilitate more of that type of thing? Well, get out there. Get out there and, and find out what the rest of the world is like and see what people in the rest of the world are like and you know it's really depressing to come back here other than you know my family's here so that's you know that's that's good and my friends are here and that's good but then you you uh you, you know you, you get back into the groove of being at work and you see what people are working on you see what people are interested in and you know you start you, you and, and everybody's talking about juicero yeah which uh, you, you know what are what are we doing like, is it like, can you look at the world around you at this point in time and, you know, see what people are going through around the world, even in, even in our own country? And I mean, does do you look out at that landscape and is the first thought that pops into your head? Like, it's time for that juicero idea. Right. What's wrong with us that that's the kind of shit that we want to design? And what's wrong with us that that's the kind of shit that we want to pour money into? How much money did those idiots get? Yeah, a lot. You don't, you don't know? I don't know. I like, couldn't tell you offhand. All right, let's say it, let's say two hundred billion. <laughs> sounds about right. I don't no, know. it was a lot. <laughs> they got a lot of money to to create this ridiculous like, smart juicer, and I mean we talk we we make fun of them a lot because that's a funny story, right? But it's not like they're an outlier. Yeah, they just need to think about that. Yeah, like we're on this planet for how long? Like. Like eighty years, if we're extremely lucky, we have. I mean, we have this career where we're supposed to, like, you know, we call ourselves designers. Like, yeah. hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna go design things. We're gonna go make things real. We're we're gonna make things happen. Things that couldn't happen without us. And is this what we want to spend our time on? I mean, we're supposed to be problem solvers. Yeah. And if we are problem solvers, and you know, this should be a, a rich, rich moment in time. Because we have stacked up those problems like none I've ever seen before. We got a 
shitload of problems that we could be working on. How to squeeze juice using your phone is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as designers, I mean, it's unquestionably like an ethical trade. So, like, how would you describe like the ethical responsibilities that that we carry and like where the designers sit in the big picture of that? Oh, all trades are ethical trades, all of them. Doesn't matter what you do. Right. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, like like that baker that I met in Toronto. So he he discovers that his flour is bad, but he says, "Fuck it, I'm going to use this flour anyway. I'm going to use this flour to make my pastries." Yeah. And because you know, people might get tummy aches, but they'll probably never actually blame the pastries. So he probably get away with it. There's a reasonable chance that he'll get away with it. So he'll use that bad flour, he'll make his pastries, and then he doesn't have to throw that thing out. Except a good baker would never do that. It would never occur to them because that's not who they want to be. That's not who they are. And and that runs counter to, to everything that a good baker would believe. Uh, a good doctor, I mean, doctors famously have ethical standards, the Hippocratic Oath. And, I mean, you couldn't walk into a doctor and, you know, get a prescription for, for pills that you didn't need, it would be totally unethical for them to do that. And here's, here's, here's the good part. They would lose their license if they did that. So all these professions are out there, oh, they all have ethical standards, like cops. Oh, my God, cops. Do, do cops have ethical standards? And, and all year we've heard, the last few years we've been hearing stories about, you know, uh, cops not behaving according to those ethical standards. And we get pissed off at that, as we should get pissed off at that. And and now, I mean, when I talk about designers having ethical standards, people argue with me. People fucking argue with me. And that's the part that I find ludicrous. It's not like, hey, let's define what those standards are. It's like, should we? Should we have these? Like, is this something that we need to worry about? That makes me worry about the um, the immaturity of people out there calling themselves designers. It makes me worry about the decency of people out there calling themselves designers, wondering if this is a thing that they should even consider. I, I think that's pathetic. So everyone loves to talk about empathy. You know, we, we hear that a lot. We need to design with empathy. And you've spoken you know, a fair amount about, you know, this term, the, the veil of ignorance and how that's actually the most important item in a designer's toolbox. Like, how do you feel the roles of empathy and ignorance differ, you know, and why is that distinction important? That's a great question. And I mean, I think empathy is a bullshit term. Yeah. Not by definition, but it's certainly something that's become a bullshit term in this industry. It's become a way for us to keep excluding other people from the problems that, that are being solved. And it's it's a, a great way for, for a company that's, you know, like 90% white boys to uh, keep excluding everybody who's not a white boy by just saying, hey, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got empathy towards those other people, so we can design with them in mind. Yeah. You know, I, I, I much prefer including all of those people. It's, it's I mean, it's a... It's another word for exclusion, really. The veil of ignorance, on the other hand, is a philosophical construct where when you're designing a system, it's, you can't take for granted which side of the system that you'd actually be on. Take a company like Uber. 
So if you take a look at it in the most abstract of terms, it's it's a ride-sharing company where, you know, people who can offer rides team up with people who need rides. And the whole thing, you know, at its base core, there's there's nothing unethical about it. And you take a look at the people who run that and the decisions they make and why they make those decisions. And there's no thought given to the people getting into those cars and different types of people getting into those cars and, you know, what happens when somebody getting into one of those cars gets harassed, which, you know, if you've got a team of white boys who have never been built designing this tool and they've never been harassed in their life, you don't think about that stuff. I mean, I don't think about that stuff. That's why I make sure that, you know, when I'm designing something, there are people around who aren't like me also working on it. And you take a look at who's making money off of this, and it's certainly not the people doing the labor, and certainly not at the percentage that they should be making money off of this thing. So let's say that I'm designing a system like Uber, and I'm designing it with the veil of ignorance in place. That means, like, so, so me and you are designing Uber. Now, when, when all is said and done, we spin a bottle, and we could be a passenger, we could be a driver, we could be uh, somebody working on the app, or we could be the person who runs the whole thing. And under that scenario, you're going to design a tool that hopefully works well for everyone involved because it could be you. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So let's think for a minute on that question of education and, and design education. What are some of the, the skills that designers generally lack and how do we fill that void? Well, first we need to pull design education out of art schools because it's a joke. I mean, Art and design have as much to do with each other as, you know, a, a lemon and a bag of meat. And yet we still, you know, when I was growing up and I went to art school, like there was fine arts and then there was the commercial arts. Right. But they were still viewed as arts. 
Yeah. And out of the commercial arts, you had, you know, mostly illustrators at that point. Like you would use your drawing skills to help, you know, sell sugar water. And that was basically it. Yeah. And then, you know, interaction design emerged from all of that. But it was it emerged from those programs. and But it emerged from those from those same schools, those same departments in those schools. And we're still grabbing, you know, kids from the hallway in the art department to come be designers. And, you know, you still got designers graduating from those programs talking about, like, fucking feelings, which, you know, I have nothing against feelings. We, but this is, this is the job. This is the job that we've decided to go do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have kids talking about, like, fucking dribble. Like, that's not design. I mean, I know Dan who, who founded that, but I think things like that do a disservice to design. I don't think that was the intent, but that's where we are. You know, you've got designers who are most focused on style, which is the least important part of designing anything. And you've got people hiring designers based on that. And you've got, you know, a generation of designers following a definition of design that was given to them by engineers, you know, when we first started doing this whole internet thing. Yeah. And they so, don't know what the job entails, so they're not doing it right. Right, and so we have this we have this gap between, you know, when, when a designer leaves school and then what they actually need to do the job of a designer. Mm-hmm. Like, what would your advice to them be? Like, should they, should they take a job at a, at a smaller startup or should they, you know, is it more beneficial to look at larger companies? Man, see, this is this is the hardest problem at all right here. I mean, this is so complex and so ridiculously big. You just graduated from school. You are like 50 to 100 grand in debt. And you've got Facebook offering you like 150 grand to come work there. And you go from one campus to another one. You go from a place that, you know, told you where to be every five minutes of your existence and, you know, had laundry facilities and had lunch facilities to the exact same type of place. And they're taking care of you and they're giving you haircuts and they're feeding you and they're doing your laundry and they're paying you 150 grand, which sounds pretty good when you leave school with 100 grand in loans. Or you could go work for some crotchety old designer like me or you. At some tiny little design shop that pays you maybe half of that if you're lucky and can teach you a ton about how to do this job to the point where you're like, if you're taking like a long tail view of the thing, you're eventually going to become a much better designer if you go work for somebody because you you just graduated from school. You don't know shit. You do not know shit. The only thing you know is that you owe somebody a hundred grand, which is a pretty amazing thing to know and a pretty scary thing to know. I remember graduating school and I I had, this is a long time ago, and I was 10 grand in debt and like not being able to sleep at night because there is no way in my life I was ever going to make 10 grand to pay off those loans. Yeah. But I mean, that shit is real. That shit's real when you're like, tw- when you're 22. Yeah. So why would anybody in their right mind not take the 150000 job at Facebook where they take care of you and help you pay off your student loans that much faster. That's the problem. It's the combination of having to go into debt to get a bad education, 
graduating from school and having somebody like probably with a bus right outside of your graduation ceremony it's probably like a facebook bus right outside your graduation ceremony saying we need a hundred designers to start tomorrow and you kind of be an idiot not to get on that bus right that's the problem i don't know how to solve that i mean i do know how to solve that we make education free yeah well, what, but, well, you know, do you want to talk about socialism for the rest of the podcast? Well, I mean, we can do, but sure. you know, let's. What I will say is that is that your shop, Mule Design, has started putting on workshops that anybody can go covering things, things that designers and other people could potentially do with with learning to be able to function at the appropriate level. You do how to present work better. There's a research course. Our team at Intercom was was recently at, at one of those. Yeah, you sent a bunch of people to one of my workshops. Yeah, loved it. They they had a good time. They had a great time. They learn a lot. Absolutely. Are they presenting better now? They are. They are really. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, is it that education gap that that was the the impetus for starting to put those on? Or yes and no. I mean, the reason that we put those on is so we started out as a client services shop. Mm-hmm. You hire us, we make you a website. Or, you know, and then, you know, as the world changed, we expanded that. Like, you hire us and, you know, blah, blah, service design, blah, blah, design thinking. I still don't know what it is, but we charge for it. And the entire time that we were doing this, our industry was also convincing, trying to convince people that, hey, you know, design is something important. Yeah. Something that you need to build into your company from the beginning. Yeah. And they did. People did that. Yeah. Which was great. The net result of that is that there were less projects yeah. because people were working with less outside vendors. So, you know, little design shops like us who were in the business of doing that had to evolve. So we did. And we picked up on this thing that, you know, uh, all of a sudden companies like Facebook and Uber and them are hiring like 300 designers at a time straight out of school and then, you know, dumping them into projects. And these people have absolutely no idea how to do this job yet. And there's rarely anybody at those companies who can train them. Now, I've also been doing this for long enough that, you know, there's there's a path. There's a career path that you take where, you know, you start off, you absolutely suck at something, and then you get a little better at something, Mm -hmm. and then you master it, and then you get good enough that you can teach somebody else how to do it. And I'm old enough that I'm now at the point where I I can teach other people how to do it. And I wanted to teach other people how to do it. And I looked around at what was going on in design schools, and I didn't like what I saw. So I figured, well, we'll just do this on our own. We'll just do this workshop thing, get get our toe into educating. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing. And it's been going really well from what I hear. Well, um, I don't have a, I'm not rich. No. I'm not getting rich off of it. There's a little better designers out there. But I'm enjoying, I mean, I'm, I enjoy the hell out of it. So I do a workshop on how to present your work. I mean, when I talk about presenting your work, like let's say I'm the designer and you're my boss and I have to convince you that this thing I just did actually meets the goals of the project and and was done right. That interaction, like how do I make my case for my work? Most schools don't teach that, and right. that's such a fundamental part of our jobs. I mean, I have to convince you that this stuff is right, and then you take it, and, and, and you take it up like three floors up, and you convince somebody up there that it's right. And 
So the workshop that I'm doing is how to present your work effectively. And I see people at the beginning of the class and, you know, they're admittedly scared shitless of talking in front of other people, which, because it's a scary thing to do. Right. And then by the end of class, they're, they're, you know, like climbing all over each other to go next. It's great. It's great to see that. It, it feels like I'm actually making a difference and I can, and I can see that difference during, you know, over the course of a day. And, you know, then I go home feeling like I've had an impact in people's lives. And so if a designer shows up at a mule design looking for a job, what traits or skills do you find in candidates that you want to work with? If I'm hiring somebody, the first thing I look for is, I mean, obviously I'll look at the, you know, my first contact with somebody is generally an email. Right. So you send me an email like, hey, I want to come work for you. And if that email sucks, I'm not even going to look at your portfolio. Right. Because this is a community, I mean, we're professional communicators. Right. And if you can't write a decent email, you know, nothing else matters. If you wrote me a half decent email, then I'll take a look at your portfolio. If I take a look at your portfolio and it shows like any modicum of intelligence and, and, explains like here was the problem in front of me and here's how I solved it. That's the sentence that I'm looking for when I'm looking at those portfolios. I, I see a lot of portfolios that are just like, here's some style, here's some style, here's some style. That tells me nothing. But if I see like, here was the problem, here's how I solved it, here's how well it did, that immediately gets my attention. And, you know, if I'm also looking at, you know, good work, because there is a visual component to the stuff that we do. I don't want to dismiss that completely out of hand. Just a lot of desire, a lot of designers think that's 100% of what we sure. do. Yeah. So if they can solve those problems in a visually compelling way, then I'll bring them in for an interview. And it's, it's the interview where I decide whether or not to hire you. Yeah. How do you talk about your work? How do you, what do you want to get out of your career? How excited do you get about things that you don't know? How willing are you to admit that you don't know something? So of all the people that I've hired that uh, where it went south, that is the most common thread is people who are not willing to admit when they don't know something. Right. That's a career killer. Because, you know, you need to be curious as, as a designer. Well, if, I mean, if you, yeah, exactly. If you can't admit you don't know something, you're never going to learn it. So, you know, when a designer tells me, like, hey, I don't know anything about this, I get all excited because it's right. like, one, hey, they just, they're, they're comfortable enough to admit something. And now I get to teach it to them. Let's talk super quick about your new talk that you've been taking on the road, How to Fight Fascism. What's the enduring message for, for designers at, at the end of that think, talk? Think about what you're doing. Look at the things that you're spending your time on. Realize that you're responsible for the outcome of the work that you're doing. Do you remember about a year ago, after that horrible massacre in San Bernardino, where the government asked Tim Cook to build software to break into an encrypted iPhone, and Tim said no. Mm -hmm. Now, he's no angel by any means. They're, that company does a bunch of bad shit, too. So 
not absolving them of, of any of that. But in this particular case, he said, no, I will not build that because then it will exist. And if it exists, it can be used for evil. And if it's used for evil, then I will be as responsible as the people using it for evil. That's what I want designers to be thinking about. Yeah. What am I building? What am I giving my labor to? How could that be used? Is this making the world better? Optimally, you're working on things that are making the world better. But you know what? I'm not trying to talk you out of leaving your startup job and going to work at fucking Greenpeace and, you know, on a, on a, on a trawler saving whales. I need you working at Facebook. I need you working at, at places like, cause it's not going away. I need people who give a shit, people who think ethically working at places like Facebook. That's where we need people with spines. Meg Montero, thank you so much. Thanks, Stu. Thanks for having me. Should we go play some pinball? You got a pinball machine here? No, we're going to go down the street. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Intercom.